0: Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I Zoom in someone who's dope, and we'll just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out the podcast, this is the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest is Dr. Tori Wobber. Uh, we are going to be talking about something that's very interesting because I remember, I believe it was last week, and someone on my Twitter feed, academic Twitter, were talking about the need for higher ed to really expand sort of what career opportunities are available uh, to doctoral doctoral students doctoral students because as we all know uh just getting that degree most of us are not going to get that 10-year professor position in higher ed uh those just don't come around very often uh and so what do you do when you have when you're walking around with those letters behind your name do you just language in obscurity as an adjunct uh you know what's available to you. So I wanted to have uh, Dr. Tori on uh, because this is what she does. This is her business to talk about how people who have graduated uh, can go out there and transition uh, into, into industry and what does that actually look like. So Dr. Tori, for those who'll be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I am Dr. Tori Waber. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Will. I think this is such an important topic, and so really appreciate your carving out the time to talk about it. I got my PhD in 2012 in human evolutionary biology. I jumped into the tech industry after that, and now I'm a coach for PhDs because I've coached more than 50 folks to move from PhD to industry roles. So this is something I'm passionate about, and as you mentioned, There are not as many faculty roles as there are PhD students, and so opening these doors for folks who are qualified is something I'm passionate about and and an impact I enjoy making.
0: So I'm always curious to how people got to where they are. What did you think you'll be doing when you were growing up, and how did you find yourself at the intersection of education and entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I I completely did not envision this when I was a kid. I think in elementary school, I recall wanting to be a chemist. And so I knew science was for me. I took the chemistry classes in college and figured out, oh, no, no, I can't do this. (laughs) This is not me. And I ended up uh, lucking out that in my freshman year, I took a course that I loved. And I ended up working for those faculty members. And actually, one of them ended up being my Ph.D. advisor. So it was almost by chance that I was like, this sounds amazing. I could keep doing this. Wow, I'll go do a PhD because they'll pay me to do what I love. But it's funny, I ended up in entrepreneurship, I think, because the parts of academics I liked were being self-disciplined, being curious, being able to drive my own workload. I could do those very well. And I couldn't have jumped straight from PhD to entrepreneurship. But after seven years in the tech industry, I had enough business acumen, I had enough financial reserves that I could actually make that leap to entrepreneurship. And so I'm happy with the choice I made to jump into the PhD, it was what I wanted to do. I'm happy I then chose to work in tech where I could have a little bit more financial cushion and understand how business works. And I'm really happy now as an entrepreneur, this is just a great fit for me personally in terms of what I enjoy doing, which is having impact and having a lot of autonomy. And doing so in an area where I feel like it's important to actually make a difference.
0: All right, so like you know, you're in your doctoral program and you are approaching the end of it. Your dissertation has been approved, and I know everyone. When you get to that point, you're excited. I know I wrote my chapter five originally in a day and a half. and, and for those of you who don't know what that means, that's that means that's insane. Uh, So I turned it in and my chair was like, "Well, I'm going to need you to take some time with that. But I was like, look, I need this out of my life because I was really at a point of I needed to choke somebody. Um, But you're finished and now you're going now what? So what were your plans then and what led you to do the work you're doing now?
1: Yeah, well, wow. Chapter five in a day and a half. That is impressive. You made it work somehow.
0: (laughs) Well, I had to go back and do some more work on that, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, and so uh, there's two transitions here. So I'll walk through each of them. When I was finishing my PhD, I believed I was going to be a faculty member. And I had that vision. I pictured myself in the departments. Everyone I interviewed at, I would picture myself living there. I did this extremely cruel thing where I would look up Zillow in the place where I was interviewing to check out houses to like envision myself living there. And so that made it crushing when then I didn't get those offers, right? I was like, maybe I could live in Santa Barbara. Oh no, wait, they're gonna hire the person who is the postdoc of the search chair, not me. Okay, right, so crushing defeats in each of these faculty interviews. And so with that crushing, there was this sense of, I don't wanna keep doing this. I don't wanna keep going on these faculty interviews getting my hopes up and being told that I'm not enough. And so I gave myself, after one season, I gave myself one more season on the faculty market, did one more year faculty interviews. I think I did five interviews in one season, didn't get any offers. And so then within three months had picked up and moved over to data science at Facebook. And so I gave myself a year to give it a last shot and then three months to actually make that leap from deciding I wasn't gonna do faculty over to data science And so that's how I made that first leap, I think, was hitting a wall of frustration, giving myself a timeline to then make the move, and then actually making the move once I'd already decided that I was ready. So that's how I made that leap from Ph.D. to Tech.
0: Wow. So you're in Tech. I'm assuming you're enjoying yourself. Hopefully the money was good. Uh, What then made you say, you know what? I need to help other folks take the same journey I
1: did. Yeah, well, and it's funny in tech, it was hitting another wall (laughs) where it was just, tech is so fast paced, so high growth. And so for me, the stress was quite significant. And so I was actually on leave for that stress and basically thinking to myself, okay, what do I enjoy doing? And the thing that stood out to me was the conversations I had with PhD students that chance I had to unlock opportunities for them and say, you can do more with your skills than be a faculty member. And so I thought to myself, huh, what if I could do a little bit more of this? And so I took a coach training program, really loved it, started seeing if, okay, maybe I could make this a business instead of just paying it forward. I had done those initial PhD conversations just to pay forward, but I had done about 50 of them. And I was like, okay, I think, <laughs> I think it's time to actually see if I can charge for this. And so basically took the steps to move from tech into entrepreneurship over the course of about six months of recognizing I had hit a wall and then figuring out how I could make it viable to then go and start my own business. So it was a similarly drawn out process, though not quite as drawn out as leaving my PhD.
0: So tell us about coaching and how do you assist PhDs in getting non-academic jobs?
1: How PhDs can get non-academic jobs? Sorry, I missed your question. Yeah, so what I've seen with PhDs getting industry roles is there are two things they need to do. One is figure out what they wanna do and basically figure out a place in industry where what they want and what they're skilled at can be valued. So there's this process of matchmaking, if you will. And the second is learning to convey their existing skills using different language. Now you'll notice I didn't say building any new skills, right? I'm saying take the skills you already have from your PhD, find a place where they could be of use, and then find a way to communicate their value to that role. So most of the work is in that matchmaking and that language shifting not in building up any new on the job skills. And I've seen folks land jobs with this approach time after time. So that's where I'm confident that that can actually be of use for folks with pretty niche disciplines (laughs) in a variety of roles.
0: Mm. Well, how do you, and I wanna throw this out there to you. How do you work with them on getting a new dream, right? Because I went into, I enrolled in the doctoral program because originally I wanted to work in student affairs and not that I still you know, can't do that, but once I started to do informational interviews with uh, various people, uh, I just kept hearing this recurring theme of, before I got to this position of uh, director, I, I worked at this one university first, I went to another college, and then I went to somewhere else till I found a guy here. And I didn't want to drag my wife all over the country. Uh, she teaches a K through 12. So I didn't want to do that. So I was like, okay, maybe higher ed is not going to be something for me. And I was blessed to find a position in K through 12 that I enjoy. But for those who, that was their dream, right, to go to higher ed. And that's all they saw for themselves. And, and now it's it's time to build a new dream. How do you talk to them about that?
1: Yeah, those are great points. I'll reference first. You mentioned this location. I think it's such an interesting thing when we work in academics, we assume, OK, we have no control over where we live. Right, But as soon as you start considering industry roles, there's, hey, wait, I could choose. (laughs) I don't have to go and move my family exactly where the job is. So your example is is a spot on one where many folks have to make these trade-offs for their entire family because of academia. That's wild. And so on that point of the new dream, there's actually, I've seen this among many folks, there's a grieving process that has to happen right? You have to grieve the loss of that dream. There's a part of identity in that dream that may shift as you move into something new. And so there is room to create a new dream, to create new opportunity, but recognizing that there will be experience of loss if you had that vision of this is what your career was going to be. I think just normalizing that for folks, and it's not everyone. I've seen folks go through the career shift and just have tactical questions, but for many of us, that emotional component is there. That identity shift is there. And so I think being public about that and voicing the fact that that is part of the process is really important in empowering folks to go through that grieving.
0: Mm. I still see myself on campus. We have a university in our city and I love just driving through the campus and seeing all of the students in the buildings. And I imagine myself you know, being in a class with... Um, Uh, you know, these elbow patches on my sweater, you know, having these conversations and really just engaging in this, 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 this intellectual combat. Uh, I I still see myself there, but I've been hearing some things about higher ed that kind of make me, that's making me go, oh, I I don't know if that's necessarily what I want to be in terms of the politics, but when you look at what you are doing now. Where did you get the 411 on business development? Because when you're an educator, and particularly you have a, you, with your degree uh, being in the sciences, and, and my degree being in education, without that business background or having those degrees in business, a lot of times we don't know business. Right. We don't know about building systems. We don't know about, you know, QuickBooks for accounting and invoicing. Uh, We don't know about ConvertKit or MailChimp. Uh, There's a lot of things that we don't know that once you get into the game, you have to know because you can't build a scalable, profitable business without systems. So, how did you go about learning business development? And how did you learn how to take your actual knowledge of this was my journey of wanting to be this higher ed uh, professor, tenure professor, going into working for Facebook. And now here I am, I work with people, but how do I take that experience and actually turn it into a business? How did all of that come about?
1: Yeah, great questions. Well, it's interesting. On the business development point, I think that would have been much harder if I had leapt straight from PhD into entrepreneurship. I had many of the skills that entrepreneurs need that self discipline, drivenness, curiosity, those come in handy. But working in the tech industry gave me visibility into processes like how do we look at a profit and loss statement? How do we understand sales and marketing? How do we do product development? All of those tools that I got from being part of big companies. I use now in my small business, and I'm inordinately fortunate to have gotten exposure to that in a way that I wouldn't have been that if I had jumped straight from PhD. The other thing I did, though, that anyone can do is I looked up other folks in my network who ran small businesses and asked for their input and guidance. And these were folks running businesses in totally different areas of, of Uh, practice, right? I talked to a friend who ran a small business as a lawyer who still does. I talked to a friend who runs a small business as a sex therapist and said to them, okay, what should I be thinking about? What do I need to know? And so with that um, network, almost asking them for mentorship conversations, that helped me make sure I didn't have blind spots that I wasn't seeing. Because otherwise, as an entrepreneur, you're just going to learn via failing. (laughs) And that's part of the process, too. But if you can find mentors in your network who are doing something similar, uh, who have been a CEO of something or led some business, even just a half hour conversation with them can help you see a lot of what you might not know already.
0: So what makes tech a rewarding option for those with a doctoral degree?
1: Yeah, so tech is amazing in the sense that it is growing rapidly and so they have more jobs than they do people to fill them. And often folks in doctoral programs have a lot of skills that are useful. They may have skills in statistics or understanding probability, may have skills in research method or design. And so those skills are actually in demand and it's an industry that has a lot more jobs to begin with than nonprofits like universities, where they're paying folks, you know, barely living wage to adjunct in a random city, right? Tech is actually, in many cases, even if you're in a contract role, you're going to be making a wage that is much more livable. And so the newness of the industry and its growth means there are a lot of opportunities. There are, of course, also downsides to that. Tech has its immature aspects because many of the companies are younger. And so I'm, I wouldn't be blind to those, but just in terms of sheer volume of opportunities to get your foot in the door so that then you can keep crafting your career as you go, tech is a great place to start and to sort of get your initial industry experience to then keep deciding where you wanna go from there.
0: So given where we are in higher, in higher rate, there is no one who works in higher ed, who doesn't know this, not the president, not the dean, not not the provost, not even the department chair or professors who are chairs and other professors who are chairs of dissertation committees. They know what the job market is like. Yet universities are still sort of in the game of, trying to turn these students into researchers and college professors when everyone in the game knows this thing is riddled with adjuncts that they barely pay any money to and as we mentioned earlier the opportunity for you to become a 10-year professor where you can make uh I guess some good money depending on your discipline I know when I found out that full-time uh Business professors and those who worked in tech made a lot more money than those who taught English. I was like, wow, uh, that's interesting. Um, Why do you think universities, knowing what they know, still prepare their students for academic positions and not for careers outside of academia?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think there's sort of three categories of folks I've run into in academia these days when it comes to thinking about industry. One set who are aware, actively advocating for other opportunities, open to helping their students thinking about it, making connections. That's the smallest percentage, but they exist. I have encountered faculty members who are in that place. Another are faculty members who know that there aren't enough positions, but they don't know what else is out there because they never did that search. And so their grad student might come to them and say, I want to do something else. And they say, great, good luck with that, <laughs> right? So they are, they're uh, they're accepting of the other options, but they are just ignorant of what's out there. Uh, and the third group I would say are actively trying to perpetuate this stay in academics or else. And I think there there's two things going on. There's a conflict of interest and cognitive dissonance. The conflict of interest is for each individual faculty member If they can attract PhD students and they can place them, they help their own stock, right? They help their ability to, you know, get more students in the future. They help their ability to get grants and publications. So it's in their interests to take students and to try to place students. And the cognitive dissonance piece is that if they consider other options, it almost makes them re-examine their own choices. Because for many of them, it probably wasn't a choice. It was just inertia. And so rather than have to take that hard look and build that self-awareness of what am I choosing, what's going on in this environment, it's easier to turn an eye away from it and pretend that it's not happening, which is really unfortunate because then the folks who have the other end of that are the postdocs and PhDs, you know, hoping for opportunities that don't exist. And so I think it's a very real phenomenon that's understandable in terms of the conflict of interest and the, and the cognitive distance. I do think university administrators could pull levers like limiting the number of new PhD lines or basically having more resources available to help folks find industry paths. And some universities are creating that, but I do think the the hubris around it and that really that uh, conflict of interest of wanting the workers is what prevents them from investing fully and allowing folks this sense of having multiple roads available.
0: So what is your advice to that current graduate student who is thinking about applying uh, to a doctoral program? uh, How should they start approaching the career planning process before they enroll, as well as those who are just beginning that process? In the program, what should they be thinking about in terms of what they should do with their degree? And how should they, you know, be, you know, advocate for themselves and be proactive in trying to figure out what's next for them, as opposed to just going through the program, maybe doing some TAing along the way, and then they graduate, you know, you put on the big old thick gown, the poofy hat, and then it's like, uh, what do I do now?
1: Yeah. Well, and it's really, it's wonderful to think of that through the entire process, right? All the way from accepting the PhD all the way through. And if I could say something to someone throughout any of those stages, it's that you have choice, right? You have choices of what to do, and you're the only one who owns your career. So it's not your PI or your advisor who owns your career. It's not your parents. It's not your friends. It's not your partner, right? Like each of us owns what we do with our career. And that is both freedom, right? There's freedom in that, but there's also responsibility. And so at each stage, making informed choices. Hey, what am I choosing by going into a PhD as opposed to some other type of role? What am I choosing in finishing this PhD? What else could I be choosing at each stage? I see too many folks go into academics out of obligation or thinking they have nothing else and maybe they stay in it because they think they have nothing else. And I would want even folks who are pursuing faculty positions to be doing so out of a thoughtful choice instead of some sense of inertia. And so at each stage, giving yourself the chance to choose, giving yourself the chance to research your options and make an informed choice will allow you to really take ownership of your career instead of just floating by and letting your career happen to you. And I say that having done that myself, right? I was just like, hey, this is fun, I'll keep doing this. And then only woke up in a postdoc saying, where am I, what am I doing, where is this leading? And so I went seven years without checking. And so I would say every year checking with yourself and saying, where is this leading? How am I feeling? What do I want for next year? That intentionality is something I missed, but something I now help folks to build, because I think for anyone in their career, that choice, that informs choosing is really critical to find fulfillment.
0: I want to throw this out there to you about the resume. Uh, most resumes in education. Just, hey, I've taught this, right? I've taught this. Uh, this is my expertise in this, I've done this type of research, I've gotten these type of grants, it's here, but those resumes don't fly well in industry, because those resumes don't tell them anything about your reach, the type of, can you scale anything? Um, When you are working with those students, how do you get them to understand that the traditional resume won't be the resume that they need to have, that they really need to look at a resume that appeals to, let's say, Apple or someone else. but Because that resume won't be the resume or curriculum vita that University of Wisconsin is going to look at.
1: Yeah. Well, and you're calling out a great point And the way I have folks approach it is actually, there's a step before the resume that's critical, that helps, which is choosing a target role. Mm. So if you have a sense of one to two target roles that you're going after, you can do your homework on those roles. You can say, what's typical? What needs to go in the resume? What's the jargon they use? What are they looking for? What are they gonna be doubting in my background? And you can do your homework. But I see too many folks who just start sending their CV or any resume, to 50 different opportunities with 50 different job titles at 50 different companies. And then they say, I got rejected 50 times. And it's because there needs to be that moment of choice and focus, right? So I actually recommend folks explore a ton of job opportunities up front. Get a sense of, okay, these are the one to two where I'm going to be the best fit. And then start asking what makes a strong resume for this role? Because unfortunately, as you're mentioning, there are different things that make a resume strong in one area versus another. And so, trying to have an ironclad resume that works everywhere. Okay, certain elements, you know, your name and contact info, fine. But beyond that, there's a lot of variation. And so, knowing where you're applying and how to tailor your resume to that area makes that process so much easier.
0: That's all right, because I mean, it was interesting because I had someone, <laughs> I, I had someone who's a professional resume writer look, you know, look at mine at first, and they were like uh, okay. Um, your resume just, I see a job description. Yeah. Right. That's what I see. And they had to educate me on that. My resume needs to look different in order for me to go from where I am now to those higher level positions, uh, because they're like, where are your accomplishments? W- w- I don't, w- what is this thing about scale of you saved? Let's say for example, you save the department $50,000 by automating X, Y, and Z. Um, where are those type of things? And I had to be educated on that because, again, I just did the, the, the typical, I taught here, I did it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, which, again, were just representative of the duties of my job description that I actually did. So I had to learn to look through it at a different lens myself and had to actually pay a professional resume writer to actually re- uh, rewrite my resume. Uh, be, before we go, yeah, go ahead.
1: There's a big gap there, <laughs> but I'm glad you found your way to navigate it. It definitely is a big one, but if you can make that leap in the sort of boarding of the resume, a lot of different doors open, as I'm sure you saw.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I had, it's interesting, I had an initial interview, with a tech company a couple of weeks ago and they were like, we'll get back to you. And I have not heard from them as of yet. And someone told me that this particular uh, tech company takes time when they hire people. Like, I'm like, okay. Uh, And then another uh, tech company I applied to and I got something back from them. And they said, okay, we're gonna be reviewing X, Y, and Z. And again, we'll get back to you. So we'll see uh, wh- where anything uh, goes with those companies. But it's, it's it's definitely interesting for me just to have the experience of you know coming from K through 12, which has its own sort of vibe and cadence to how everything goes. And then having the experience of being in those interviews versus being in a tech interview and some of the questions they asked. Uh, because I never had anyone send me corporate information before an interview saying, oh, go through these things to familiarize yourself with our company. I was, oh, okay. Uh, so that was different uh, for me. This that experience alone because I had never experienced anything like that. Uh, so I'm still learning and we'll see yeah. if I make that transition.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say there's a learning curve there, but you're putting yourself out there, which is brave, right? To put yourself into that hiring process is always brave. And so learning by doing every role you get, you'll get a little more information and leveraging your network to help you benchmark, right? Like you were saying, you're asking folks, is this typical? The more you can ask them, hey, what do these interviews look like? What are they looking for? What should I be aware of? That helps you just have that, that structure around what you're doing. So it doesn't all have to be learning by <laughs> doing <laughs> which I, I say having done plenty of learning by doing myself but there's definitely a good way to leverage your network to help just bring in some of that knowledge that you have that they have
0: no doubt no doubt and i it was hey it was interesting and i hey, maybe they're going to listen to this, listen to this episode when it comes out, i don't know but you know that that, that whole that whole question of what is your salary right what do you what is your salary range? I didn't flinch when I gave my. Oh, that's my a
1: tough number. one. <laughs> I, hey,
0: I didn't flinch when I gave my number, uh, so nice. Yeah, hey, I believe in acting your wage. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I I don't. Hey, I I think of money a little differently, which hints my podcast. Uh, so for me, knowing my worth, I'm not going to just to get a job with. X, Y, Z company going to take less than what I'm making now or a smidge over just so I can say, oh, I work for this company. Nope. Uh, I'm fine where I am. Uh, you know, you can't you can't live off hope and dreams. Uh so no. I'm I'm definitely good. So before we go, I wonder you wanna your, huh? You're add something?
1: Uh, I was gonna say one more. Yeah, I was going to say one more thing on salaries. So I think two things, internal and external. Internal, knowing your minimum standard. Here's what I need to maintain my quality of life. I can't go below this without changing my quality of life. That's reasonable when you're looking for an industry job. If you're looking in nonprofits, they may not have any flexibility. They may have pay scales, et cetera. But if it's a for-profit company, then you can actually have a standard and have a sense of what you need to live. The other thing is to do your research, right? If there's anything like Glassdoor, or PayScale, where you can get a benchmark of what that company pays folks in your area, then when you're asking for a number, you can say, hey, the backup here is the data over on this website. I know it might have some error, but that's at least helping the range, both come like basically comply with your internal standards and with what the benchmarks are that you can find available. So use both of those to make sure that you don't get undercut in salary if you're looking for a for-profit role
0: all right look at those gems look at those gems so before we go doc i want you to give us your call to action for those uh folks who they're already in the ivory tower and they're ready to get out they're ready to move on and tell us about academic exit yes well and the call to
1: action is you can choose to leave it is okay for you to leave academia to find something that meets your standards in terms of where you live, what you get paid, finding fulfilling work that leverages your skills in a way that keeps you learning and curious throughout your life. And so I created Academic Exit, which is a playbook to guide folks through all those stages. From that stage of am I allowed to leave and that grieving, that identity shift, all the way through exploring roles, tailoring your resume to fit your target roles interviewing, negotiating, and landing successfully. It contains all the expertise I've gotten from making that sort of leap myself and coaching more than 50 folks through that leap. As I was doing that, I started to notice these patterns of, okay, here's the stages that folks go through and the challenges they face at each stage. And so that's a way for you to not have to fall into those holes (laughs) that others have fallen in before you. Take that guidance, take that mentorship, take that support, And so with the book and the exercises, you then can make that journey yourself. I also work with folks in group coaching programs and one-on-one. Academic exit is a self-serve playback playbook. But if you find that then you want more support, more structure, more accountability, then I work with folks to help make that transition, particularly around grieving the identity shift. That can be really helpful to have someone to hold space for. Or if you want to do things like resume or interview prep, those are things that I help folks with. And this is because I believe that folks should be working in areas where they are fulfilled, whether that's in academia, whether that's outside of it. And so no one should be coasting through their career on inertia. And if I can help PhDs land industry roles and actually earn what they're worth, then that makes me really excited. And that's the impact I want to have.
0: All right. Now, that's how you end the show. Uh, Dr. Tori. thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. You are welcome. Now, people, you know how I do this. This podcast episode is going to be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, and Audible. I need you to subscribe and share with your network. And though I am on all major podcast platforms, I'm trying to grow on Apple Podcasts. So I need you to not only subscribe, but I need you to listen to the episodes and drop me a review and a rating, all right? Because I'm trying to be found, people. I'm trying to be found, and I'm trying to get Oprah on a show, and I want her to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Tori Warber, for coming on and dropping so many gems, and for you for checking out another episode of the Dr. Will Show, the Mobile University for Entrepreneurs. As always, people, invest in you. E.D.U. Peace.